Hello and welcome to the Walk Around Podcast. If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining us. Our goal is to share insights, skills, processes, and leadership advice that are influencing the retail automotive landscape today. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Spoto, as always, joined by Elliot Shore. And today we are talking with Doug Campbell, Head of Fleet Services for the Americas at Avis Budget Group. He's responsible for acquisition of cars and trucks in the U.S., relationships with all manufacturers, and the remarketing of vehicles for all brands. Previously, Doug was Vice President of Remarketing for the Americas and led the company's wholesale, retail sales, and OEM programs. You know, Doug shared such insightful commentary on making the jump from being in the dealership world and now in the corporate environment. I thought that was super interesting, Elliot. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it was um, really interesting to hear his advice on, you know, what are the things to focus on, you know, when you're in that retail world and, and wanting to make the leap and, and really thinking about there's a whole automotive ecosystem out there of opportunity for people and, uh, and to kind of take, take a look at it. Yeah, we learned a ton from Doug today. All right, without further ado, let's take a walk around with Doug Campbell. Well, Doug, welcome to the walk around. You have the pleasure of being our first guest on season two. This is really exciting for us. So welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. So first of all, just congratulations. Avis is just crushing it. Crushing it. For all of our listeners who don't know, as of your last earnings call, profitability up over 100% year over year, as well as revenue. It's got to feel good. How are things going for Avis from your perspective, Doug? Well, it's been an interesting last couple of years, obviously, uh, due to pandemic. I mean, I think if you go back to the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of skepticism around whether the rental car companies could sort of make it through. And, uh, you know, our other public peer, you know, obviously face the same challenges um, and weren't as lucky to sort of navigate it. But, you know, it was very, very tough, really trying times. but you know, we ended up sort of pulling through. And then, you know, last year, obviously, as you mentioned, a banner year, I ended up with $2.4 billion in EBITDA uh, and a wow. company record. Wow. Uh, you know, coming off what would be a normal year, a normal really good year at six or 700 million in profit. So, yeah, uh, just I mean, really, I, really, really astounding. That's, that's really what I call, you know, taking lemons and turning it into lemonade. I mean, <laughs> sure. You know, most companies were just struggling to stay alive. And you guys took this opportunity to, you know, pivot, readjust your strategy. And I mean, the, the results have been phenomenal. How, how did you guys do that? How did you pivot like that in such a tough environment? Um, it, listen, there were um, many different things, lots of uh, people involved in that. But if I had to call out a couple large sort of items, uh, it was our ability to sort of react quickly. and. Mm. It wasn't a great feeling, you know, when we had to uh, exit or furlough employees at the beginning of the pandemic, but we made that decision early on. It ended up being, quite honestly, one of the things that helped us navigate uh, through it. And, you know, we're happy to say a lot of those folks came back. And so that, that felt really good to be able to bring people back. Um, another one was uh, the ability to take costs out of the business. And so in 2020, I think we pulled out two and a half billion dollars worth of costs out of the, build, out of the business. And then through that, um, we became sort of maniacal about cost control mm. and then what costs we let back in the business. And our CEO, Joe Ferraro, uh, really, I would say, overmanaged that, right? And forced us all to really take a look at the business, 
to make sure that when the business came back, we had more elasticity you know, on the cost side of our business, that if the revenue wasn't going to be there, that the costs weren't going to be there, right? And so uh, everything from you know, how we manage vendors, comp plans internally, we are set up more uh, in a differentiated way going forward uh, to navigate you know, challenges that have come our way. And Doug, you know, one of the things that I read about your background is your responsibility for relationships with the manufacturers and the OEMs. Can you talk a little bit about just how those relationships made such a, a difference in navigating and being able to pivot in an environment like this? Yeah. Um, listen, I would love to say, <laughs> I would love to say it was, you know, uh, that I had a giant hand in sort of ma- navigating that, but the company is 70 plus years old. Uh, and those relationships are really longstanding. And there's a lot of folks that have ha- uh, sort of carried the torch up to this point. Um, and my predecessor uh, left for another opportunity last year. And so I got a chance to take this role in, I think it was ended up in June last year, Elliot, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, you know, it, it sort of forced me to sort of drink from the fire hose and sort of manage those relationships. So, you know, you have 18 OEMs, there's three or four points of contact which, with each one. And and sort of force you to really you know, engage because there couldn't be a more challenging time. Uh, but in, a, in another sense, it was really good because nobody had been going through what we've seen before. And so we were all starting from the same sort of baseline, right? And that sort of was made it an easier transition. We were all navigating something new and they really needed help, right? They really needed to know that those partnerships were true and what we could do to help, right? And proud to say like the partnerships are deep and our ability to help them navigate this by uh, pivoting quickly, getting orders in quickly, changing orders, destinations and locations, removing equipment, adding equipment, taking different wheel sizes, right? It's the ability to be agile, do that. That really helps. Uh, that, that The OEMs need that sort of flexibility with a large mm-hmm. So I got to ask a question. So I do, a, I do a bunch of business travel. And, you know, back in the day when I would rent a car from Avis and I'd jump in the car, you know, if the car had, you know, 15,000 miles, I'd be like, Wow, this that's a lot of miles on this car. <laughs> but you know, I've been noticing now, you know, I jump into cars and you know, now I see rentals with, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 miles. Is that a trend that's here to stay? You know, I don't know yet. It's it's early to say. I would say certainly in the early innings, I think the rental car companies in particular are being cautious on how they manage your fleet. Right. Um, and if you look just from you know an industry standpoint, what got sold into rent a car historically, if we call uh, pre-pandemic 2019, I think it's everybody references 2019, uh, 1.9 million cars got sold to rent a car, right? Got wow. registered. Um, if you go to a 2021 full year, uh, it was like 930,000 cars got sold to rent a car. Wow. Right. So 50% less fleet. Now you can make a case that says, do I need twice the amount of fleet or do I need to run a smaller fleet twice as long? Right. And so we're sort of going through like, what is that sweet spot and how long do we need to do that for? Uh, certainly there are benefits to, to turning the fleet over when it's younger, right? While it's fully warranted and covered. Um, but there are also benefits to utilizing that car in the latter part of its depreciation curve. Right. Um, and we've learned like cars are made better, right? Our OEMs build a really good product and we can use it for a longer period of time. And so I think what you'll see is that all the rental car companies maybe use that asset differently. Maybe there's not a million nine that needs to be sold into the industry uh, on a go-forward basis. It might be something less, which makes us that typical rotation you might see. Maybe the car you get in might not have single-digit miles. It might have fifteen or 20,000 miles as an average, to your point. Right. Uh, certainly, there's some higher mileage ones in there uh, now, but I think that's more uh, people managing it out of caution more than anything. 
So Doug, on that note, you know, we find ourselves in such an upside down used vehicle market and, you know, rental car companies are in the same boat as dealers in terms of inventory constraints. So what's the acquisition strategy look like now for your business and in the rental car industry in general? Yeah, so that's been really interesting. So technically, you know, rental car company would get six to 12 months lead time right before they get cars delivered. And so we're sort of getting a preview on what's to come where the dealer is sort of more month to month. So certainly we get a little bit uh, different view, different vantage point on how things uh, might look. But the strategy is to get everything you can. Right, of course. (laughs) Every rental car company has that same strategy. So, you know, it's the quint it's the quintessential, you know, knife fight in a telephone booth. Everybody's trying to get everything they can. But at the end, like, you know, they're really smart people across all the rental car companies. I've learned these people are wildly more intelligent than maybe than I was in my retail phase because they're so focused on one type of asset and how it's used and its cost and its residual value. They get really sort of like focused on that. And I've learned a lot through that. But it really just becomes about how much can you procure, right? And, and, and what your share is going to be in the past. It wasn't such a large concern. You really got to be a little bit more choosy on what you got. And now it is like, you got you to go where the cars are, right? Who's got capacity to produce more cars? And in the short term, it's just been sort of playing that game. We've got to be open to, to something different. And to your point, like we have a tailwind in the market when it comes to price. I think that I think that sort of stays there for a little bit. So right. So you know, it's interesting as as you know, in sourcing vehicles. So I was at it uh, in Vegas at NADA a few weeks ago, and you couldn't avoid electrification. I mean, it was everywhere. It was the buzz of the town. And um, you know, curious, Doug, from your perspective, are are you starting to bring in EVs into your fleet? Is that a strategy you guys have down the road? And and are you seeing customers want to rent EVs from you guys? Is there customer demand there? Yeah. So that EV, we have um, I would say as a company, we've tracked EVs for a long time. It was when I started with the company in 2018. These conversations were going on in the building, and uh, obviously, it's been a large part with global company, been a large part of our fleets in Europe uh, for quite a while. So that's not necessarily new. Um, what is new is here in North America, it's certainly getting more traction. Where it had sort of hovered at this half a point to one percent of sales for the longest time, you know, when there became less vehicles available, and uh, manufacturers started pulling incentives uh, in addition to raising MSRPs. There's more price parity between an ICE vehicle and an EV vehicle than there ever has been before. Mm. And so I think when consumers are now forced to go, well, if I have that going on and it's not such a big walk-in price to take on an EV vehicle, in addition to rising fuel costs, it's getting more attraction and attention. Uh, For large fleet companies, certainly there's a huge opportunity for us to sort of spearhead that, right? We typically take on you know, 10 to 15% of all new cars sold as rent-a-car and fleet companies just in general what's sold into the fleet segment. And so there's a huge opportunity for us to sort of spearhead that and really help the OEMs uh, get traction and really uh, accelerate that. Publicly, we've disclosed, I think uh, Joe mentioned on our last call that we're taking in EVs in real time. And so, yes, we have EVs coming into the fleet. Wow. Um, There's a lot of learnings there, right? Um, And we're taking delivery of those. Too early to tell sort of what customer demand is. Right. But I think uh, full year numbers for last year were like a little over 3% of total sales in the U.S. were uh, electric, full yep. BEV uh, cars. And so 
you know, I don't know what the demand sort of looks like. That's the actual number, right? People, 3% of people, of buyers, new car buyers said, hey, I'll raise my hand and take that on. I certainly think there's more curiosity and maybe a willingness to try. And I think a rental car company makes a great platform for customers to have that experience. Right. So, yeah. Uh, the OEMs are wanting us to sort of help with that, but there's more demand now than there is sort of the opportunity for us to take on cars. So we're, we're raising our hand where, where it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I, I think about it like, you know, if people want to try an EV, I saw some stats that the biggest barrier to people adopting EVs is, um, is the fact that they have never driven one. Right. And so if they can rent one for a few days, you know, I, I could see a great partnership there between Avis and the manufacturers, you know, to help, to help, you know, to help the manufacturers sort of get the vehicles in, in customers' hands just to test them out. And Doug, do you see, uh, are you working on a strategy in terms of helping your retail locations prepare for that influx of EV? Is there anything from a facilities perspective or just operations in general at, at the retail locations? Yeah, so um, we have people in the building focused on the infrastructure side, right? Yes. Yeah. Like, uh, the chicken or the egg, right? You need the infrastructure, you need the cars first, to, how does that work? Uh, you got to do both because we don't know when the cars are going to come in and create volume, but you got to do both. So we have people focused on the infrastructure side. And I think certainly this is going to be not just this or rent a car problem. This is like, right, this is an infrastructure problem that's systemic throughout the U.S., right? Most of, I'll call it up through 2019, it's something like 70 or 80% of sales happened in California. Sure. Right. But most of the infrastructure is there when we throw out that infrastructure number. It's really weighted uh, towards, I'll call it the West Coast, uh, up and down the West Coast. But now, you know, it's sort of become everybody's opportunity. I don't want to say issue. It's everybody's opportunity to help scale. Uh, the infrastructure. Uh, we're going to have our part, uh, which is going to be interesting how that plays out for airport locations, right? That'll be like a federal sort of approach. Uh, and I think a little bit more complicated, but certainly out in the local markets, uh, we can play a bigger role in trying to help accelerate that, right? Where you can put infrastructure in place without paywalls for consumers to use, and you can get sure voice and, and top of mind awareness that we're out here uh, you know, participating in these. Yeah, uh, it's an exciting time for sure. It and, really is. You know, I always, I'm always, you know, your vantage point on the market's always interesting to me because you're you're buying vehicles, you're selling vehicles, and you work with every manufacturer and have all this information. It's awesome. But you know, switching gears a little bit, Doug. I, you know, having known you for a little while, and um, I've been so impressed with how you made the leap from the box to the boardroom, um, and. You know, we have a lot of retail associates that listen to this podcast. And, you know, what would be some advice, you know, that you could give an aspiring <clears throat> retail associate and how to make that leap from, you know, retail sales or retail uh, dealership to the boardroom, to, to the executive table? What's been the keys to that for you? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I think, you know, so I grew up in automotive retail uh, and I spent about 20 years uh, with a private cap sort of cutting my teeth and sort of growing through the ranks like most retail people do. You, know, you get your shots and your opportunities. And through that, you learn a lot. And as you start, I'll say, jumping into management, you start taking on more. And at some point, you know, you have the I'll call them two tranches of people. You have people that really enjoy what they do. They love what they do. The, obviously, the money is great. That's like a legacy thing within automotive. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully that stays there for forever and ever. You're right. But, um, uh, there's this other opportunity. There's like this inflection point where you think you could be doing something more, but you're not sure. For me, really, the turning point 
was like having kids, right? So I had a young family and, uh, you know, pressure from, you know, my wife to participate more. And right. all, we've yeah. all been there. <laughs> yeah. No idea what you're talking about. No idea. Right. So that, that would, quite honestly, that was a catalyst to sort of force me to say, I really love what I do and I want to be in this space, but how do I continue to do that and leverage all these skills you've amassed over the years, but leverage them in a different way. And so uh, I was, I was based out of South Florida. That's where I sort of grew up and cut my teeth in automotive and he- AutoNation headquarters is there. And so I took an opportunity at a headquarter role there, mm-hmm. which was both headquarter based and field based. So I got to do a little bit sort of in the building and I got to be out in the field and run multiple markets. Right. And then I was there for a longer period of time. I took on more responsibility. And that was sort of like a good transition point because it forced me to participate more in sort of those planning and strategic discussions um, where your talent and your knowledge base is really leveraged on what is actually going to get traction in the space to run the stores. But it also helped me sort of be in a more corporate environment, right? I sort of had better balance, better work-life balance for sure. Uh, but they're really buttoned up company. Uh, AutoNation is, is uh, who I was working for there really buttoned up and helped me sort of polish up my skills. It really was like, like a lily pad, if you would, to sort of get to uh, the opportunity at a headquarter role here at Avis. And so now I'm full-blown corporate. I sit here at World Headquarters in Persephone, New Jersey, uh, and it's very different, right? So fleet is the biggest line item of expense on our P&L, and so it gets lots of visibility right, <laughs> uh, right into the C-suite in the boardroom. And so, um, and obviously given the environment, there's, there's lots of... Uh, uh, challenges to navigate and that's a team sport right there's multiple people involved there it's uh, not just the doug show it is a it's a team sport we we live and breathe that both on the acquisition and the selling side so doug you know for someone who's just getting started in in the their automotive career on the dealer side of things what sort of advice could you give them if if they have aspirations to move over to a corporate role or get more involved on the oam side of things yeah so you know, I think certainly as you, as you, you know, most people sort of grow from the ground up. They start in sales and might go into sales management or F&I. If it was me and I had to do it all over again and I could draw my own path, I would go through F&I and take that as far as I can. And then I would transition out of sort of call it traditional automotive retail. Hmm. And the doors are wide open for what you can do. I think from an income standpoint, as much visibility as there is on the front end of the transaction in terms of pricing, right. consumers have access to. I think the uh, the potential for income is is limited there, right? Your your pay structure is going to be limited. On the F and I side, that's been accelerating over the last couple of years, and it's where you have the opportunity to make more money for and sure. really sort of control the structure of the deal and the consumer experience, right? You get to be sort of one on one with the customer, and I think that experience really puts you in the driver's seat, right? No pun intended to sort of control the transaction and make you a better leader, right? When you're having those conversations one-on-one with the consumer uh, and then take that talent, that skill set you have and parlay it out in anywhere in automotive. There's lots of great places you could go to. Uh, There's lenders, there's OEMs, there's finance companies and their remarketing portfolios. And so I think that would probably be the path I would take if I had to do it all over again, just on the front side of the house, clearly. There's lots of different paths you could take, but if I had to do it over again, that's probably what I would do. Yeah, you know, it's, it's excellent advice. It really is. Thank you for that. That's, uh, you know, and, and I think what I really like about that too is, you know, the, the auto industry really is that broad, the way you just described it, you know, and I think, you know, people in, um, you know, retail, maybe, you know, it's looking beyond the store and seeing the whole infrastructure and the whole supply chain that makes a dealership work. 
is a is a great advice for people. So that's that's fantastic. Thank you, Doug. Yeah, yeah. and well, it's good Doug, work on the used car side of the house. I would that too. You know, was, uh, um, absolutely. This person told me a long time ago. You know, used cars make everything float, right? They put recon dollars into your shop, right? You need new ones to make used ones. You take used ones in when you sell new ones. They sort of touch everything in sort of a dealership environment. So anything you can do to stay involved on that used side uh, as well. That just came to my mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, Doug, we're going to switch gears here and try out a new segment on the walk around. (laughs) We're calling it, we're calling it a sure thing. So our own Elliot Shore here has, you know, traveled all corners of the automotive landscape and he has some hot takes from time to time. You yeah. know, he's got some opinions. A little bit. So we want our guests to be able to validate or challenge those hot takes in the form of, is it a sure thing or is it not a sure thing? So Elliot, let's fire away and see what Doug has to say. All right. So, you know, like we were mentioning, EV is big topic. And I feel that EVs will be 50% of new car sales by 2025. Sure thing or not a sure thing? Not a sure thing. Why not? There's lots of challenges uh, and barriers to EV scaling. And and I'll call them the the gotchas in a way. The natural resources needed to sort of build out EV. You never know when you're going to have a global crisis like the war in Ukraine where there are a lot lot of natural resources that are needed, those sort of things sort of slow down. And they require, depending on the OEM, 30x the amount of semiconductors to produce those vehicles. And so like at a time when there's a semiconductor shortage, it's really hard to scale that. I certainly think it is the future of automotive. And if you're in automotive today, you're getting beachfront property to, to our transition into electric vehicles. I just think it might be a little bit slower than what you're articulating. I got to go with Doug on this one. Elliot, you're 0 for 1. Let's oh. go Let's go to your next. What's, what's your next take? Well, thank you, Mark. You're a wonderful host here. Um, next hot take. Okay. Um, you know, pre-pandemic, it wasn't unusual for dealers, you know, in the industry inventory situation to be, you know, 45 to 90 days supply. I believe inventory will never come back to the levels that they were. Sure thing or not a sure thing? The OEMs and the dealers are both reaping the benefits of revenue, right? And that uh, that that does really good things to your PL, right? Having sort of less floor plan expense, uh, needing less real estate, right? To to have a dealership, and it enables you to sort of rethink about what the dealership looks like, what that footprint looks like. Um, and I think the OEMs are building out tools now because this this pandemic has really just we're in our third year of this now. They're building out tool sets to allow consumers more access to vehicles upstream to get exactly what they want. I don't think that goes away. I think the consumer's really going to enjoy that and they're going to continue to build on that experience. Well done. Well done, Elliot. Would you agree? You're back. You're back. One for for two. He's one for for two now. One for two. I'm the Ted Williams of It's a Short Thing. (laughs) All right. Um, Last one. All right. Last one. All right. We got a big one for you. Okay. I imagine you saw the Oscars or a little bit of what happened. I believe Will Smith will never win another Oscar again. Sure thing or not a sure thing? I plead the fifth. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I think I was just as shocked as everyone else to sort of see another person assault somebody on live TV. It was like, it was pretty crazy. I don't know what happens from that. 
So well, much like the automotive business, the academy yeah. awards are totally unpredictable. <laughs> right, no, doubt, right. no doubt about I, that. I would have said prior to the Oscars, it's a sure thing that you probably get assaulted if you were standing on stage, but you know, you never know. It's 2022. <laughs> well, Doug, this has been an excellent conversation. I think a super strong start to season two. It's going to be hard Amen. for a lot of guests to match this. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And best of luck to you and to Avis for the rest of the year and beyond. No, I appreciate you having me. Uh, it's, been, it's been fun. Hope you have me back. Yeah, no, for sure. Thanks, Doug. It's uh, always great to talk to you and uh, keep up the great work at Avis. It's been amazing to watch the meteoric rise there. So awesome work. Thank you. Whether you're a dealer owner, general manager in sales or service, or just starting your automotive journey, you're sure to pick up some actionable insight from the Walk Around podcast powered by JM&A Group. Be sure to keep listening, keep up with the leaders who are influencing the automotive landscape today. We really appreciate you joining us today. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to. Go ahead and check out jmnagroup.com slash resources. We have a ton of helpful free resources for, for everyone out there. Um, I'm Elliot Shore. You can find me on LinkedIn at uh, Elliot Shore, S-C-H-O-R. And in the words of the great Dennis Morton, be good out there, but if you can't be good, be careful.